Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. This is part two of a two-part episode that focuses on the future of work. We'll continue to explore the universal basic income to understand how it addresses the issues of inequity and precarity in the labor market. A basic income is defined as a periodic cash payment, unconditionally delivered to everyone on an individual basis without means tests or work requirements. And it's not a new concept. The humanist Johann Leviticus Vive, who lived from 1492 to 1540, is regarded as the founder of basic income. He was the first to work out a detailed plan and a comprehensive argument for it based on both theological and pragmatic reasons. Since then, other leaders and thinkers have proposed similar plans for a minimum income. From the utopian socialists of the 1840s to the liberal economists of the 1960s, Andrew Yang, a U.S. 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, campaigned on a platform that centered on the freedom dividend, a plan that would give every American $1,000 a month. But for the most part, conversations about basic income have remained at the fringes. The quickening pace of automation, compounded with the social and economic impacts of the pandemic, are bringing these discussions to the forefront. To understand the basic income and its impacts and potentials, we will explore the Ontario Basic Income Pilot, a program that was launched in spring of 2018 by the then Liberal government of Ontario. The pilot ran in three sites to test the concept in a mix of urban and rural areas to reflect Ontario's diverse population. Participants had to be 18 to 64 years old, live in one of the pilot areas, and earn an income of less than $34,000 per year for a single person and less than $48,000 for couples. Over 4,000 people were enrolled in the pilot, with an additional 2,000 in a comparison group. The goal was to determine how a basic income might help people living on low incomes better meet their basic needs, while improving outcomes in other key areas, like food security, mental health, health care usage, housing stability, education, and labor market participation. Participants received up to $17,000 a year for a single person and $24,000 for a couple. For those who worked during the pilot, the basic income decreased by 50 cents for every dollar earned. For people with a disability, they were able to receive up to an additional $500 per month. The pilot was slated to run until at least 2021, with participants set to receive monthly basic payments for up to a three-year period. However, in June of 2018, a general election in Ontario saw a new government come to power and cancel the pilot just one year after it had begun. The conservative government, led by Doug Ford, began to cut off payments to participants in March of 2019 and announced that it would cease any evaluation activities as of July 2018. I had the opportunity to speak to Jessie Gullum, who participated in the Ontario pilot. Jessie talks about her experience and the impact that basic income had on her. My name is Jessie Gollum. I am in a photographer and a musician and um, an activist. I do a lot of work with basic income. At that time, I had four jobs. They were all minimum wage contract work jobs. 
very precarious and none of them really offered any benefits or safety. And it was a very stressful existence. Like I was just constantly working, you know, I would be up early in the morning at one job and then over to another job and over to another job as well as trying to start a business. And that was sort of the motivation for having all the jobs. There were two things. One was that I had left an abusive relationship where we had lived together and it cost me a lot of money to leave that relationship. Like I had to save up for about six months and get an extra job just so I could afford the first and last month's rent to be able to leave this relationship. I was doing that well, still financially supporting the entire household and our relationship. So it was difficult. And then the other one was, yeah, trying to start this business. And it costs a lot of money to start this business or any business, really. You need to have some sort of financial floor, like, you know, to take the jump and take the risk of putting yourself in there and investing the time into that business and having the money to be able to do that because time is money. It was really hard to start my business because I was constantly working. So I didn't actually have time to like develop my business plan and get clients and everything. So when I saw the basic income pilot, I saw like, I obviously qualified. I was um, living in Hamilton. I made less than $30,000 a year. And those were the qualifying factors. You would be a fool not to apply. And then I also just saw it as this opportunity to recover financially from what I lost from that really bad relationship as well as be able to have the time to be able to start my business because then I had this financial cushion that could protect me and give me the ability to take that risk. For over a year, the pilot project was making it possible for people like Jesse and hundreds of other participants to have the money to cover their basic needs like rent. When the program was cut abruptly, there was no interest or plan for the government to capture data or to spend any time to understand the insights that may come from it. Luckily, members of the community pulled together to evaluate the program and to ensure that this important information and the experiences of the participants were not lost. The result is a report called Southern Ontario's Basic Income Experience. Wayne Luchuk, a co-author of the report and professor at McMaster University, talks about how this evaluation came to be and some of the key insights that he and his fellow researchers learned about the impacts of the pilot. Uh, Wayne Luchuk, I am Professor Emeritus in the School of Labor Studies and Department of Economics at McMaster University. I was originally a member of the provincially appointed evaluation team that had been asked to evaluate the program for the provincial government. So therefore, I had some knowledge of what was going on. And then once that evaluation was scrapped by the provincial government, a couple of my graduate students came and kept bugging me that given we're in Hamilton and Hamilton was one of the pilot sites and there had been a lot, there was still a lot of ongoing discussion anecdotal about the impact of uh, the, the abbreviated basic income pilot on people in Hamilton, that we should do some sort of local evaluation. And so we got together a little bit of money and we worked with this poverty roundtable here in Hamilton and we put together a small survey that we recruited people from the Hamilton pilot to fill in and we did interviews with a selection of those who completed the survey. Certainly it was a very positive experience for the people who are on uh, basic income, positive in the sense that their health improved quite dramatically positive in the sense that they adopted better uh, lifestyle choices. So they drank less, they smoked less, they ate uh, healthier, a few moved into better accommodations. Certainly overall, they had a much more secure experience of life. The other thing that was most interesting from my perspective 
was that the most dramatic impact was not on people who were relying on traditional social welfare, the people who on who were on uh, ODSP in the pilot. They certainly benefited because they got a little bit more money and there was less surveillance of their lifestyle than there is under ODSP, so those are positives. But the, the, the most dramatic changes were on people who were in various forms of insecure and, and precarious employment, those people on the kind of the fringes of the labor market in low-paid, insecure uh, work, they were the ones that experienced the biggest increase in, in health outcomes, both mental and physical. And many of them also were able to uh, leverage the kind of basic support that basic income gave them to take some chances in the labor market, allowing about a third of them to move into better jobs, both in terms of pay and better prospects. A number of them went back to, to school to upgrade their skills, and presumably they would have re-entered the labor market at a higher level once that retraining took place. And so it's, I mean, it's unfortunate that the pilot was truncated and, and didn't last long enough, so we, really, we can't really see any of those kind of long-term effects of, of basic income, only short-term effects. For the most part, people continued working, so those who worked before the basic income pilot continued working during the pilot, and I said uh, about a third of them moved into better positions as a result of sort of chances they could take. They could leave behind a uh, sort of a dead-end, low-paid job and take a chance on another one, knowing that if it didn't work out, they'd be able to fall back on their basic income supplement. Jesse reflects on the day when she first learned that she would be part of the pilot and how receiving a basic income changed her household finances and the options that became possible for her. I remember the very first day I got the letter that told me I was going to be on basic income. I, I, I was so busy that day. Like I got the letter and I didn't really react to anything when I saw it. When I read it, I was like, oh, I guess I'm getting a basic income. Cool. Time to go to work now. And they, I worked all day at all my jobs. And, and everything and didn't really have time to think about anything until like the very, very end of the day. It's late at night. It was like, you know, long 12 hour day. I'm driving from home, um, home from work. And I just kind of thought to myself, I was like, my rent is covered. Wow. My rent is covered. And then I just started crying and, and, and just like sobbing, like with relief, thinking about my rent being covered. And, and it wasn't a lot of money that I received from basic income because you could receive on the Ontario basic income pilot, if you were a single person, you could receive up to $1,400 a month. But if you were working, that amount would be weaned off 50 cents a dollar. So um, I was still working. So I received $700 a month. So it's not like a lot of money. It covered my rent. And that's about it. I still had like, you know, my car to pay for and other bills and food and living. And But having that cushion and having that floor and assurance that no matter what, I will be getting this amount of money per month and that will cover my rent was a huge, huge, huge relief. So it was um, really great on my household finances. But then the other thing that happened was that because I had that cushion, I felt free to quit those jobs. So I did. So I quit a whole bunch of those jobs and, um, and focused on starting this business. And I've been trying for years to start this business. I'm only finally kind of getting it started now. And I'm looking forward to finalize my business plan and, and begin applying for funding. I finally had the time to start it and work on it and focus it on it. And what I was seeing was I was actually making more money 
than I was when I was cobbled down with all those multiple jobs. I was making more money. I had more free time. I was enjoying what I was doing a lot more. I felt so much better. It was really great being my own boss. I was getting clients and I was, I was building everything and I had time because I had time to market the business. I had time to do the things to make my business succeed. The thing that was stopping me before was time and, and money. So, so having that, those two factors taken care of meant that I could do this. And then I had even developed and wrote out a business plan back then. And, and I had projected that with the way that things were growing and everything that was happening, that I actually wouldn't have been on the basic income pilot for the full three years that the pilot was supposed to run. It was supposed to be a three-year pilot. And I had calculated that by year two, I would have been making enough money off my business. I would have been I would not, I would no longer have qualified to be on the basic income pilot. I would have been making enough money. I wouldn't need basic income anymore. And I could just do my business full time. So you can imagine my frustration at having made that calculation and predicting that. And now it's still years later and I'm still, I can't start this business yet. Jesse's experience dispels the myths put forward by some critics who claim that a basic income will be a disincentive for people to work, that a minimum income each month will cause people to drop out of the workforce to stay home and collect a check. In addition to the personal stories like Jesse's, the data shows us that this just isn't the case. Wayne explains what his team found about how basic income impacted participants' employment and engagement in the labor market. I think what we saw is in, in the survey, but also in the interviews, it says that most people who are working before the pilot continued working after the pilot. A number did leave the, the labor market, a small number. Some of those left the labor market to engage in non-paid work activities. So they may have had a sick child or a sick parent or someone in their household who needed a little bit of extra attention. And so they, they, they took that as an opportunity to provide that kind of a service, a non-paid service, but still something of, of significant value to society as a whole. And a number took the, the basic income as a, as a moment to go back to school and to upgrade their human capital with the intention of, of you know, going back into the labor market at a higher level. So I, I think it's a bit embarrassing that we think that simply giving people 20000 a year would be sufficient for them to withdraw from the labor market and other any further activity. That's just not a realistic assumption of the general behavior of Canadians. And I think it certainly was reflected in our data. And everything we know about basic income is that people do not withdraw from the labor market as a result of these small subsidies. The evaluation of the Ontario pilot also looked at the effects of basic income on housing and the financial status of basic income recipients. Wayne discusses what the researchers learned and why basic income isn't the answer to solving all the issues impacting people who are working in precarious jobs or who are dependent on government benefits. A universal basic income must be part of a systems-based solution that also addresses the challenges of affordable housing and the issues discussed in part one of this episode like the disproportionate impacts of automation and labor market disruption on people who are already making less money, who lack benefits and job security, and who have fewer employment options. We certainly saw some movement on that dimension, you know, people moving into better housing. But again, I think the, you know, one just has to be realistic that people were getting 24000 a year 
and in the Hamilton uh, you know region you know even back then when the pilot was being run that was uh, that was a pretty meager budget to get any kind of decent housing and and today it would be even more of a problem so i don't think that you know the basic in- the basic income is not a solution to all of the problems of people in the bottom third of our society uh, and it certainly it was not enough to solve the housing problems although it did contribute to a few people making progress just like it's you know it's it's not a solution to workers uh, not having benefit plans or pensions or access to eyeglasses or dental plan it, you know it's a very basic income that kind of stabilizes you uh, allows you to put some food on the table maybe kind of keep up with your bills and maybe even you know have a few fringes in in your life that add to add to your enjoyment but it's 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 not going to provide a what a middle class Ontarian would expect to have as as a, a standard of life. It's still less than a living wage. As you've heard, basic income is not making anyone rich, but it is able to offer stability. For Jesse, it was the opportunity to move away from a collection of low wage jobs that she needed to pay the bills and open up the opportunity to finally launch her photography business. When the Doug Ford government abruptly canceled the pilot, it dashed the dreams and plans of Jesse and the other 4,000 participants. The anger and frustration at this decision propelled Jesse to act. Using her creative skills, she set out to tell the stories of those impacted by photographing other participants of the pilot program through a portrait series called The Humans of Basic Income. Jesse talks about this journey that began through the lens of her cameras and how it led her to becoming an activist for basic income. I was furious. I was absolutely, I cannot remember being that angry in my entire life. Like I was so, so, so angry. It was weird. Out of the anger, the portrait series was born. And I wanted to get revenge on the Doug Ford government in a weird way. I wanted him to know my name. I wanted him to know what he did and how monumentally stupid his decision was, how harmful it was. You think about it like from the conservative taxpayer's point of view, he's denied me an opportunity to be a member of the middle class and a contributing taxpaying member to society by canceling this basic income pilot. Just denying that investment in me and, and making it now long-term where I'm still in poverty, you know, and, and, and how much of a monumental waste that was. So yeah, I, I turned my rage into this portrait series and it was just kind of, it wasn't very well thought out when I first thought about it. I was just like, I'm going to get, find these people. I'm going to take their pictures. I'm going to get them to tell me their stories. And, you know, I want everybody to know what happened. And I want Doug Ford to know my name and that's what's going to happen. And then I went out and I started doing that. So I started finding the other basic income recipients and I would get them to hold pieces of cardboard and their own words, tell me what they use basic income for. And then I started taking their pictures and the photos went viral right away. And I did not anticipate that impact. And um, so all of a sudden overnight, I have this like portrait series that's being viewed internationally and, and major media outlets contacting me and people like universities and, um, and organizations all across the country wanting to talk to me more and learn about this and, and hear this story. So all of a sudden I had this thing and all of a sudden I'm like, thoroughly on the side of this issue because now I'm like um, permanently associated with basic income and it's not like I don't mind it at all but it was definitely something I had to like suddenly wrap my head around and be like okay I need to learn more about this because before 
I was on the basic income pilot. I was kind of ambivalent. Like I had heard about basic income before. It seemed like a really cool, trendy economic idea and pretty interesting. And I'd seen some things on Reddit, but that, that was about it. And then being on the pilot, I hadn't really thought too much about what, how I feel about basic income. Just more of, I felt like, well, this pilot is helping me. I can start my business and that's all that matters to me. But now it's suddenly like, I need to learn about this. And I had to like really understand the issue. And so I did a lot of research and I read a lot about basic income and I spoke to economists and professors and academics and, and really understood the issue. And as I did, I grew more and more convinced that this is a huge and desperately important economic need that the world that we're living in, this capitalist, divisive society is so broken, where the very, very, very few people at the top are hoarding the world's wealth at the expense and suffering of all of society, not just humankind, but even the environment as well. And that if we don't change this right immediately, then it, it's just going to lead to more generations suffering and dying and more inequality and, and more of this divide in the society that's already feels and looks insurmountable. So I got really, really convinced about that and started thinking about like the longer term implications of my portrait series and these stories I told, because the stories themselves were very, were very impactful. Like I noticed that a lot of people were doing similar to what I was doing. They were building businesses. They were going back to school. They were trying to make their financial situation better than cobbling together multiple jobs. Or there was a lot of people that providing safer and, and better opportunities for their children, like a lot of parents and mothers investing in their kids and being able to have better relationships with their kids or buying better food and going to farmers markets or supporting small businesses or moving into better and safer housing. Like they're basically people were just getting themselves out of poverty. And I started to see the, the world implications and the societal implications of poverty. Poverty as a very complex issue is a very costly one. Statistically speaking, it costs Canadians $80 billion per year. And that's in the preventable health care that people in poverty are suffering from. Like if people are, are getting sick because they can't afford healthy food or they can't live in a safe space. And then, you know, that's taxpayer money that are paying for those hospital beds or people that, because poverty and crime is so, so deeply connected and linked. So people going to jail and stuff for crimes related to poverty, whereas they wouldn't be committing those crimes if they weren't in poverty. And that's also taxpayer money and, and, and so many of those things. And me seeing that consequence and thinking that could be so much better spent. Why am I paying for the suffering of people when I'd rather invest in them and see them succeed and see them go to school and get better educations and build businesses and invest in their children and provide opportunities for their children to pursue their hopes and dreams. That just seems better. It, it was that, sort of that rage in the portrait series and everything that sort of put me on this path. And that's sort of what I continue to advocate for and talk about. And some people like, like some of my friends, it's just like, it's literally all I talk about. It's, it's all I think about. The data and personal stories gathered by Wayne and the team of researchers shows that the impact of the pilot went beyond household income, health, housing, and employment. 
Having a guaranteed minimum income also contributes to more social connection and civic engagement. Wayne explains this important and often overlooked benefit of basic income. The basic income brought some stability at a low level, but stability to a number of individuals and their households. And that did allow them to become more engaged with other members in their household, to be more engaged with society. I think one of the interesting findings was that people on basic income, they reported just a a more positive view of of, of the society in which they lived in. If you're on ODSP, you're you're very much part of a a surveillance system where you're, you're constantly being monitored and things about your life are always under control. And if you're in sort of precarious employment, you're never quite sure where the next paycheck is going to come from or how you're going to pay the, the, the bill, the rents, or if you're lucky enough to own a house, how you're going to pay the mortgage. And so I think those, all those things uh, interfere with the you know, quality of life at home and your quality of life in your community. And so for, I think what we saw as people, as people became more secure with their intersection in society, they were willing to become more engaged with that society. And again, that's, I think, a, a huge positive of basic income that's you know, grossly underestimated by the naysayers. While the pilot in Ontario was cut short, the impacts were significant. The insights gained from this program aligned with lessons from other pilots in different parts of the world. The body of research points to the potential of a universal basic income to move people out of poverty and precarity and into a place of stability, with all the social benefits that come with it. So what are the next steps to moving from a pilot to a longer-term solution? In response to the economic impacts of the pandemic, the Canadian federal government rolled out CERB, short for the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. It provided $2,000 a month to employed and self-employed Canadians who were directly impacted by COVID-19. Some hoped that this would be the first step towards a basic income, but CERB has come and gone, and so far there is no clear movement towards a permanent income program being rolled out federally. At the provincial level, the Liberal Party is committed to restarting the Ontario pilot program, and the NDP has a universal basic income as part of its party's platform. As we look ahead to the June elections in Ontario, there's hope that a basic income program could be on the horizon. Actively working on this is Floyd Marinescu of UBI Works. Floyd talks about his organization's efforts to champion a universal basic income and his motivation for doing this work. UBI Works is an advocacy organization that promotes basic income in Canada. We function like a marketing agency for an idea uh, where we promote the uh, basic income on social media. We have 30,000 Facebook followers, uh, 15,000 Twitter followers. Uh, we think of our work as supporting a, a uh, both the community of activists, uh, building more activists, building more voters, creating a voting block that is visible that the parties believe they can run on in an election and win, that they can believe they can get interest and volunteers from but also supporting parliamentarians. So we, we advised on Bill C-273, and uh, we're doing everything we can to ensure that Canadians as well as parliamentarians who support basic income are also understanding the urgency for it, as well as the, the, some of the technology trends. We're the only group in Canada that talks to those economic and technology issues and not only from the, the poverty lens. I started UBI Works because as a technologist, I'm very concerned with how the how automation is affecting the job market and having grown in a house that had domestic violence, often triggered by stresses and anxieties around money uh, in a poor working class family, an immigrant family. I think we can have a country where everyone has a base 
that keeps them secure, where a lot of these financial insecurities simply don't need to be present in this time of great abundance and, and great productivity. And I think it's going to be desperately needed because we are in the fourth industrial revolution right now. And the, the quality of jobs, especially for the bottom third of Canadians, is worsening. We're losing middle class jobs. We're moving towards a two-tiered society. And I think basic income is the most important first step towards uh, uh, addressing these issues. As Floyd mentioned, UBI Works advocated for Bill C-273, federal legislation that would create a national strategy for guaranteed basic income in Canada. Included in this bill is support for basic income research to understand its impacts on government, entrepreneurship, job creation, and on Canadian communities. The bill also calls for a set of national standards to guide the design and implementation of a basic income across the country. Bill C-273 was terminated when a general election was called on August 15, 2021, and so far it's not been reintroduced to Parliament. UBI Works continues its research on universal basic income and advocates for how and why it can be implemented in Canada. Floyd discusses the plans proposed by UBI Works and the economics that can make these plans feasible. The plan we put forward was very bold at a net cost of $199 billion, which is 8% of overall uh, spending uh, at all levels of government. However, it's important to note that uh, the net cost of a, a simpler basic income that is most commonly and realistically discussed among politicians could be as low as costing merely a 3% GST increase. So to put this into perspective, we currently spend $57 billion on income support for low-income Canadians. We spent hundreds of billion dollars uh, during the pandemic. There's also an estimated another potentially 50 to 100 billion dollars in secondary and third uh, tertiary costs to the system that cannot be costed upfront as savings, but affect the government's spending, affect taxpayers' spending. For instance, the criminal justice system and the costs of poverty on the healthcare system. These these costs would go away, but they're difficult to put upfront in a funding model for a basic income. But if we can have a basic income for as low as a, a 3% GST increase, and, and the way that number comes about is the gross cost of $85 billion for, us, for that modest basic income that was tried in Ontario, minus programs that could be consolidated at both the federal and provincial level, brings the cost down to, to something around $30 billion, which, which would be a 3% GST increase. And if you wanted to argue that we shouldn't consolidate too many programs because some are still needed with the basic income, certainly a 5% GST increase could pay for that. But we're not advocating for a GST increase. It, it, how you pay for it really depends on which party gets elected, what their values are, what, what Canadians, the level of urgency at the time, despite the fact that a more modest basic income could cost as little as 30 to $50 billion in net cost, we on UBI Works' website, we showed over eight ways to pay for a $200 billion net cost increase. But I think my personal opinion, and one thing that UBI Works will be developing in the next few months, is to show a way to pay that won't cost uh, middle-class earners, uh, because right now, uh, one of the biggest threats we're facing from automation on the job market is the decline of the middle class. So when people already are struggling, check the check, they shouldn't have to pay more to support a program that would support them even if they went if they fell into poverty. We so we believe that the best way to pay for it is taxes on the financial sector as well as uh, taxes on passive forms of wealth accumulation that overall could fairly straightforwardly cover at least 30 billion if if not up to 50 and doing so in a way that is non-distortionary would not affect productive investment in the country and would not affect uh, entrepreneurial incentives 
but would target the way uh, wealth is being made in less productive ways than simply supplementing spending from the bottom up, which we know would actually grow the economy. So that's just one opinion. There are many opinions. The Basic Income Canada Network has their own plan where they lean on increasing income taxes and high income earners. Uh, and we, we, we try and shy away from that. And we're looking at, uh, at other means. But also it's important to consider the economic benefits. There was a report that the Canadian Centre of Economics Analysis put out that showed that a basic income would grow the economy by more than it costs because it is a ongoing stimulus from the bottom up. It would increase the velocity of money. It would increase spending. And with those increased economic growth, you would have more tax revenues that could reduce the cost of a basic income. So I just want to stress again that some party has to run this and how they pay for it depends on their value system. You can imagine that the types of programs the NDP tends to promote versus if the conservatives ran on it, I'm sure they would probably be looking at the GST because it's seen by economists as the most non-distortionary measure. If the liberals ran on it, I have no idea, but I, I do agree with their focus on, on uh, their suggestion, at least during the election, about taxes on the financial sector. So it really depends. Whether it is a universal basic income plan funded through a portion of sales tax or by increasing income taxes on wealthy individuals or high-profit industries like the financial sector, naysayers often point to the cost of a universal basic income as an insurmountable obstacle. But we can see the high cost of poverty the economic, health, and societal costs of doing nothing to fix the broken systems that keep people trapped in poverty and precarity. Moving beyond short-term pilot projects to a full-fledged basic income program requires a monetary investment, of course, but it's also dependent on a collective understanding amongst Canadians about the role of government in broadening the social safety net. A basic income program also has major implications for those businesses who rely on low-wage, precarious labor and speaks volumes about the kind of economy we really want to support. I think on the feasibility side, I think there's no doubt that it's feasible. Just think this notion that it is exorbitantly expensive is nonsense because we spend a ton of money on social supports already and, and we don't do it very well. It's incredibly inefficient. It's uh, has just all kinds of negative implications for the people who are on it, because it is a it is kind of a surveillance system, and and it, it just it's just a bad system all around. Uh, so I, I think it is it's doable because it's it is not that much money to upgrade to a, a a full scale system that would provide everyone with a basic income. Is it politically feasible? I mean, I think that's the bigger question because I think there's there remains this notion in society that it's giving people something for nothing. Uh, and, and I think we need to change our kind of our, our social philosophy to think of it more as what we're giving people is the tools to be successful in a modern labor market. Uh, and I think from that perspective, it's to all of our advantages because we really do need to take advantage of everyone's skills uh, and, and potential to, to have as a good a society as we can have. And that becomes even more the case as we're beginning to understand, you know, labor shortages, you know, as a result of an aging society, there are fewer people now in the prime uh, working years supplying the labor market. And so I think we have to make the most of those people. Uh, and again, I think all the evidence suggests is that giving people a, a foundation upon which to stand does not result in them withdrawing from the labor market. What it results in them is moving into a uh, labor market in a more productive way. So I think the real question, to be frank, is not will workers stop working. What are employers going to do 
if a basic income is introduced, because there's no doubt that a basic income would make it more difficult for some employers to continue some of their practices of low pay, lack of benefits, bad working conditions, harassment. You know, people won't have to put up with that. So employers are going to have to up their game if they want to continue accessing workers. Now, I think that's, that is exactly the kind of policy that we as Canadians should be in favor of. We should want employers to up their game, to treat their workers better, uh, to get the most out of their workers so that we can have uh, the best society we can have. As we imagine what a post-pandemic economy can look like and how a universal basic income can be part of creating greater stability and equity across the labor market, a systems lens is critical. Jobs are connected to housing. Housing is connected to the financial sector, which is connected to the social fabric of communities, and communities are connected to the natural environment, which is connected to everything. Seeing these interconnected systems is critical to developing a solution that fully addresses the issues underpinning the world of work now and looking ahead. This perspective must also be grounded in engaging a broad range of stakeholders. Just as Anjum Sultana spoke about in the first part of this episode, about the need to share power and give voice to a diversity of people, Jessie reiterates this through her experience as a basic income recipient and as a researcher and activist. Those charged with the creation of a universal basic income must engage those with lived experience and build the system from the ground up. I think that there's an intersectionality to everything. And I think that it can't just be, I think it has to involve an understanding and consultation with communities. Let's say we're going to give every single Canadian a basic income, but we're not sort of accounting for the issues that people are facing. So like I'm currently working um with a project called the Green Resilience Project, where we're having conversations with communities across Canada about climate change and the economic impacts and then resilience in the community. So like we're talking to people who work in like industries in Nova Scotia and the Maritimes and and what's happening there. Or we're talking to people who are working in the oil and gas industries or in forestry industries in British Columbia or remote northern indigenous communities. There's so many things and complexities and and we're going directly to the citizens to ask them like what are the impacts how is this affecting you economically how is this affecting your community what do you need and and then listening to those people and bringing forward what they need and giving them that voice and that platform to express themselves and I think that that's really important and certainly it's not easy and it's longer and it's difficult and it's emotional too because you hear about some of the devastating things that are happening but I think it's absolutely necessary and the best way to build this better world is to do it all together and that's kind of a true democracy is it not so I want to see in implementing that a basic income like I don't think it's the silver bullet be all end all solution that will fix everything. I think that we have to account for things like climate change, account for the different communities and these different people and 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 different issues that they are facing and build something that helps supplement a basic income, affordable housing, a living wage, a just economic system where nobody is left behind and a basic income is part of that. It is not the final solution, it is one piece of the puzzle of what a better world looks like. 
Looking ahead to next steps in the journey towards a universal basic income, Wayne discusses the need for better understanding how minimum income can help people to develop more long-term strategies that impact health, education, and social supports. He also speaks to the need to finally reconcile the tension that has existed for centuries between the labor market and the social safety net. Well, I think in some ways, you know, we're still at the idea phase, not in terms of how to design a basic income, because I think that debate is over. I think, you know, we have a we have a pretty good handle on you know, how to design it, the kind of, you know, perhaps income clawbacks that are necessary as people start earning money, you know, to what when does the subsidy uh, start being reduced, you know, who's eligible for it, how does it get delivered, there are options, but I think those technical issues are there. I think what we need is two things. One, we, we, we really don't have a good handle on the long-term implications of basic income. You know, there's a lot of speculation that if we introduced it today, what would happen tomorrow? And, and I think a lot of the assumptions we have around that are, are just are plain false. But what we don't have is, is, is any evidence yet that shows how people could take advantage of basic income to develop better long-term strategies, strategies around better health in the long term, reducing the burden on our, on our health system, better educational opportunities to develop their human skills, better social supports to take care of people in, in society who, who need a little bit of extra help because of things like that. We, don't, we have very little information on those long-term effects because none of the pilots have gone long enough to capture those. So I think that's one area that some work is needed. But I think the other is we really have to ask ourselves as Canadians, do we really believe that giving people a small amount of money to cover some real basic costs is going to result in them loafing around. And I think there's still an element of that in our society. I mean, that's not new. That's That's been the reality since the 18th century under Spadelham and some of the British early welfare systems, this notion that if we're going to give people any kind of support, we'll put them in, in the workhouse and make it so dismal that they want to want to go there. I think we're, to some extent, that debate is still ongoing in society, and I think we need to resolve that to some extent to clear the path to basic income and recognize that the labor market today is not what it was 30 years ago, and we need some innovative thinking to move our society forward. Ultimately, no matter how many more pilots are started or ended or research conducted, there should be little doubt or disagreement about the need for another way forward. The increasing polarization of the labor market should not be acceptable or desirable in any society, especially one upheld as a free and democratic one. Faster, smarter, and cheaper automation, along with increased competition and more frequent disruptions brought on by the threat of pandemics and climate change, will further widen the gap between those who have and those who have not. We can keep studying and scrutinizing the data, but we also need to start paying closer attention to the people around us, to the stories of those being directly impacted. Jessie speaks about the Humans of Basic Income project and why it resonated when she launched it and remains relevant now, even though the basic income pilot ended three years ago. In the literature research, we see a lot of numbers and statistics, like, you know, 5% of people did this or 85% of people did that or whatever, but Humans of Basic Income put a face to the stories. And these are people who have names and who live in cities and they have spouses and children and families that they care about and friends and things that they're passionate about and wishes and hopes and dreams. And it sort of humanized the stories. I think that's why Humans of Basic Income had the impact that it did, because it it 
took what was like what has mostly been thought of as an economic or academic issue and made it into a human issue and just sort of reminded us that these are the people receiving the basic income and these are the individuals and these are their stories. And then when that happens, we can relate to them. You know, I you can relate to that person because you're like, well, I'm trying to start a business or I'm really lucky that my parents were able to help me go to go to school or I, I'm lucky that I got this job or or whatever it is. Like it, it makes it more human to be able to, re- to relate to this person. I have kids, too, and I want to see my kids succeed, that kind of thing. So I saw that impact. Even now, people still contact me like it's been a couple of years since Humans of Basic Income has done its thing. The, the project's still very much alive. And it's still very much being seen and talked about and part of the discourse. And I think it's because of that human element that makes it different than, you know, the statistics and the academic elements. It's the human element that creates the political will for policies to be enacted that would bring bring forward a basic income that would reflect what the needs of the people are and adequately and properly fill those needs to build a better world. Albert Einstein said, it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. So far in the 21st century, his sentiments have not been proven wrong. We can choose to use technology to help people engage in meaningful work while automating the tasks better suited to machines, or we can allow robots and AI to run roughshod across the labor market, displacing workers and creating greater precarity in the name of growth and profit. The future of work will require us to reconcile our embrace of technology with its impacts on all workers and to balance our drive for innovation and convenience with the pressing need to build a fairer, more just society. Our failure to do so will have grave implications socially, culturally, economically, and environmentally. We have an opportunity to utilize tools like systems thinking and participatory design to determine how we want to live and work and the best use of technology to fulfill our collective goals. Time will tell if the Canadian government decides to take the bold move to implement a national basic income as a response to the pandemic and in order to better future-proof citizens. But it better act fast. The future will be here before we know it, and with it, a new set of challenges and technological advances that will continue to transform how we work and live. The question remains, will technology continue to dictate our future, or will we decide to collectively harness technology to design a more equitable, more sustainable, and more humane future for all people? Thank you to the experts interviewed for this two-part episode, for sharing your time, expertise, and for your efforts to make the future of work more just, equitable, and as a means for people to thrive. Thank you to Leslie Corbet, who assisted in the editing and production of this episode, and to Alexander Burton, who is engaged in research for this podcast series. To learn more about those interviewed and their work, including Jesse Gollum's The Humans of Basic Income portrait series, follow the links included in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes in this series. Take care and be well.